Well, with God's help and guidance, let's turn to Galatians chapter 1 again. And reading at verse 18. And this merely reads like a kind of itinerary, but there's more to it than that. After being in Arabia, where he was taught personally by the Lord Jesus, we read in verse 18 that after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterwards I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Perhaps these words particularly, that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Now if you remember, although it's some time since we were last in the letter, but if you remember the background to all this is the attack uh, that was waged against the Apostle Paul himself by people who were trying to undermine him and to undermine the gospel and to make life easier for themselves, preaching a pseudo-gospel. And sad to say they were slowly winning over the Galatians and Paul was of course so deeply spiritually concerned about that. It grieved his heart and distressed his soul as he says himself that they are being so soon removed from the message that he had preached to them. And uh, those who were undermining himself were also undermining his message because it was necessary to do the two things. They were undermining himself because as far as they were concerned Paul wasn't a real apostle. He had never followed the Lord. He's somebody who just appeared from nowhere, uh, supposedly having a right version of Christianity. And again, their message, well, his message, according to them, was not the real message. If you went to Peter or to James, they would be far more sympathetic to the law of Moses than Peter, sorry, than Paul seemed to be. So, Really, he wasn't to be listened to. And in all these things, they were trying to bring the church back to keep the laws of Moses so that their own lives would be much more comfortable. They didn't want the offense of the gospel. They didn't want the gospel to threaten their own lives and their own comfort. Now, that's why the apostle begins his letter, really, by focusing so much on himself. It's not because he wants to focus on himself at all. Rather, it's because he wants to remind them of how they received himself when he first preached the gospel to them. They received him as a genuine messenger of God, and that was evidenced by the fact that their own lives were remarkably changed. 
and he tells them that he was called directly by God, not by any other person or anyone laying hands on him or anyone commissioning him, nothing of that kind. He was directly called personally by the Lord Jesus Christ who appeared to him on a one-off occasion on the Damascus Road. So he is a real apostle, a genuine apostle who saw the Lord. And as well as being called directly by Christ, he then goes on to say that he was taught directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in the three days when he sat blind in that house in Damascus before the scales fell off his eyes. There was certainly something he saw and understood then. But that's a reference to the three mysterious years, or the bulk of these three mysterious years, when he just left Damascus all of a sudden and went to Arabia in the vicinity of Mount Sinai, where Christ personally taught him the gospel, even down to the details of how the Lord's Supper should be observed. You'll remember years later that he tells the Corinthians that I received, he says, from the Lord that which I delivered to you. How in the same night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. He didn't receive that from any apostle. He wasn't taught it except personally and directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's in connection with all that that he continues with this biographical information, which at one level as we read, it doesn't seem to have much to say to us. Uh, the emphasis running through it is how little contact he ever had with the apostles. Uh, he hardly ever saw them, even at the point which he is writing this letter so many years later. He had very little to do with them and very little to do with the church in Jerusalem at all. But in telling us these things, there are really lots of things worthy of our meditation and things, if we do meditate on them, which will lead to our spiritual edification. But to understand them properly, we need to supplement what Paul says here with what Luke tells us in the Acts of the Apostles. Both the narratives are concerning the same period, and it's only when you weave them together that you get a better picture of what actually happened to Saul. And uh, may the Lord help us to learn something from it. Now, after his conversion, as I said, after a few days in Damascus, he goes to Arabia for three years training. Uh, just as the apostles had three with the Lord, so did he. Now, I suppose in a way we might have expected him at that point to return to Jerusalem, where he was very well known. Of course, he had been known there as a Pharisee and a persecutor. But you would expect him, in a way, to return there because that's where the apostles were and that's where the church was mainly situated. But instead, he returns to Damascus and he begins to preach. And Luke tells us in the Acts of the Apostles that he increased more and more in strength as he preached. There seems to have been a, a difference between his first few attempts before he left for Arabia and when he preaches on his return. 
That shouldn't surprise us because the closer we are to Christ, the more strong we are anyway. The closer a preacher is to Christ, the stronger that preacher becomes, at least in his proclamation. And any true training or any discipleship in which a a man or a woman is close to the Lord produces strength of conviction, uh, strength of witness, strength of communication. Not only did he increase more and more in strength, but we're told also that he was increasingly bold. But Saul discovers in Damascus that his path was not going to be an easy one. Now, no Christians is, and no true preachers is. Interestingly, when he was converted and when Ananias was sent to him, when he was sitting there blind in a house in Damascus, Ananias told him that he would suffer much for Christ's sake. He was told that at the start. And in fact, on the Damascus road, when the Lord Jesus met him, one of the things Christ said to him was that I will deliver you from the hands of the Jews and you will go to the Gentiles. Now, by implication there, there's trouble. The person who needs deliverance is a, is a person who is in trouble of some kind. So he was being told there right from the beginning that life would not be easy for him as a Christian and especially as an apostle, a minister of the gospel. And sure enough, in Damascus, the opposition begins to appear. And it took the form of a plot to kill him. And the Jews were helped in that by the ethnarch who was ruling over Damascus at the time. The ethnarch was just somebody appointed there by the king of Arabia, who had the government of Damascus, King Aretas IV. So the ethnarch who was ruling in his name, for some reason, took the side of the Jews in this matter. Now, it's a mystery to people. Why? Was it just to keep the peace? Because there was a substantial Jewish population in Damascus. Was it that Paul had been preaching somewhere in Arabia and it caused some disquiet? Nobody really knows. But for some reason, the ethnarch is on the Jewish side. And the result of that was that Paul was effectively in fear of his life, or at least his life was in danger, and there was an official guard on the city gates of Damascus. It's not just that Jews were looking for them here and there, but soldiers were looking for him and waiting to kill him, watching the city gates and doubtless trying to locate him inside the city itself. Now, one of the Lord's disciples in the city either had himself or knew someone who had a house that had a window flush to the wall. That's the wall of the city. Now, that wasn't unusual in ancient cities. In fact, if, if you think back, you'll remember that Rahab, uh, the harlot, was like that. She had a, a house that was flush on the city wall. She remember, you remember how she let down the scarlet rope, which was a sign uh, to the children of Israel that those inside that household were safe. Uh, that represents to us the covering that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ puts upon a household. Whoever comes under his shelter and his protection is safe. That house had a window flush with the city wall 
and the rope was cast down. Well, here you have something similar in Damascus. In fact, I'm given to understand that there are houses still like that on the city wall in Damascus, flush against the city wall. And what the disciples did was that by night they took Paul into that house and they let him down uh, outside the city wall in a large rope basket. And then in the middle of the night he just had to make his way out beyond the city and as we'll see he makes for Jerusalem. And with that providence effectively closes his ministry amongst the Jews of Damascus. It didn't last too long. We don't really know how much fruit there was, but certainly it ends not in the way that he would expect it to end. Now, the passage in in Acts that tells us that the disciples took him and uh, um, let him down in the basket uses a a form of expression in the Greek language that tells us that Paul was reluctant to go. It means that they seized him by the hand. Now, that, that reminds us that Paul was not afraid of opposition. Uh, he had breathed threatenings and slaughter himself. He, he knew what it was like to be a persecutor. Perhaps that in itself, in itself helped him to face persecution, but He was strong and being strengthened by the Lord, so he wasn't afraid of that in Damascus. But there were two things that persuaded him. The first is providence itself. Sometimes the difficulty becomes so intense that it's an indication to you that the Lord wants change of some kind. It's not always easy to discern, but sometimes the sheer difficulty of it may make you mean that feel that the Lord is saying, change, move, or leave. But with that, there was the judgment of the Lord's people. They wanted him to go. They didn't say, stay with us. They didn't say, suffer with us. We're in danger with you. They said, you go. We judge it best for you to leave. And the judgment of the Lord's people on your situation is always an important vice. And when I say the judgment of the Lord's people, I mean the judgment of the Lord's living people, the judgment of his exercised people, the judgment of his praying people, the judgment of people who know and love the Lord and who evidence that in their walk with him. I'm not talking about the judgment of mere professing people, uh, even if there are thousands of them. Uh, Some people have a very foolish view of that. They think that if a presbytery says something, it has to be right. Or if an assembly says something, it has to be right. As though presbyteries are always right. And as though assemblies are always right. You can have a multitude of professing people counselling you to do something, and it may be the opposite of what you're supposed to do. When I say the judgment of the Lord's people, I mean the judgment of those kinds of people. And these people in Damascus were alive and they were demonstrating their willingness by the way that they lived for Christ in the midst of difficult circumstances. And when they said, Paul, the Lord means you to leave, then Paul understood that he had to leave. I think for himself he would probably rather face and risk death, but that wasn't God's will for him. And he listened and he left. Now make sure... uh, 
that you don't fall into an error on either side. Don't make the mistake of thinking that what every professing Christian tells you is right. Neither disregard it. Don't be so headstrong in what you feel is right yourself that you don't listen to the voices of discerning men and women of Christ who are telling you otherwise. So make sure that you don't fall into either of these two errors. I'll come back to that a little later on. Now he resolves that it's time for him, three years after his conversion, to go up to Jerusalem and we're told that he went up to see Peter. Of all the apostles, he's the one that he seemed to want to meet particularly. And in the dead of night, he begins that journey down the well-known road from Damascus to Jerusalem. Now, it was three years since he had travelled that road. And everything's changed for him in that space of time. Uh, Some of you may know what it's like to leave a place as one person and to come back as another. Uh, Perhaps uh, you left home unconverted, you return home converted. Something similar to this. He would have passed, for example, the spot at which the Lord met him three years before, on that very road. It's hard to believe in a way that he didn't fall down on his knees and give God thanks for having met him there. There's no doubt that people attach a lot of uh, superstitious reverence to places and things of that kind. And while that's an error, it doesn't take away from the fact that we always feel attachment to places and times where the Lord met with us and spoke with us. How could you possibly revisit, for example, maybe even the room in which you were converted without being overcome by what the Lord had done for you and giving you thank, giving thanks for that? I remember reading the diary of my old minister in North Uist um, when he recalls visiting the college and the room where he had received uh, so much instruction from a godly minister in the 1920s and how he just had a special time of prayer giving God thanks for that instruction and teaching there. He would have passed that spot. And of course Paul also enters the famous city of Jerusalem which he had left three years before. He left it a rabid Pharisee. He left it as a zealot and a persecutor and he left on a commission to destroy Christians in Damascus And how different everything looks on his return. I mean, he can't look at anything on this city except completely differently. The temple that he loved and revered, what was it now? The Pharisees he adored and worshipped, what were they now? And the fact is that he is now going to seek fellowship from the very people that, quote, he was wreaking havoc on, on Jerusalem. He's now going to seek their fellowship. He was going to seek the fellowship of people whose relatives he quite possibly put to death just three years before. Now, we read things like, I went up to Jerusalem to meet Christians, and we don't understand all that's involved in that. All that's involved in it from his side. Going to meet people that he had wounded, and that he had hurt, and made life very difficult for. Now, if that wasn't easy for him... Neither was it easy for them. wasn't easy at all. We read in Acts 9 that when he tried to join the disciples, that they were afraid 
and did not believe that he was a disciple. He tried to join the disciples. The Greek word there means that he wished to be recognized by them and to have close fellowship with them. It's a word that indicates to be, to be glued, to be stuck together. That's what he wanted. I mean, how different this was from how he felt leaving. He now wanted to cleave to these people, to be close to them. That's what, the, that's what grace does in the heart of a Christian. You want to cleave to others who love Christ as you love the Lord Jesus Christ. But that was far from straightforward. The fact is that they weren't willing to receive him. And again, when it says that he tried to join the disciples, again, the way that is written in the Greek language says that he persistently tried to join. It wasn't just one one attempt. In fact, we would translate it by saying that he kept trying to join the Lord's disciples, but they were not willing. Now, there's three reasons that they weren't willing to do so. One is unsaid, and it's formal. The other is spoken and spiritual. The one that's formal is that, to put it simply, Paul did not have what we would call a letter of commendation. Now, a letter of commendation was what churches used right from the beginning. It's a synagogue practice to to authenticate people to each other. So that if a church uh, sends somebody anywhere to another body of Christians, they would authenticate them, receive such a person. You find frequent references to that in the New Testament. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he asks them, um, with a measure of irony, he said, do I really need a letter of commendation to you? when you yourselves, your very existence as converted people, is a letter of commendation written by the Spirit of God in your hearts. But do I need a letter of commendation to you, or do I need one from you? Are you really going to authenticate me? He's referring to this kind of thing. When Apollos, the, uh, the young preacher that, Aquila and, that Priscilla and Aquila took aside, you'll remember that they recognized in his preaching that they didn't have a full, he didn't have a, a, a really full understanding of the gospel. And although he was an eloquent man and he was very well versed in the Old Testament, but there were aspects of the gospel that he didn't understand, that gracious man and woman took him aside and taught him the way of the Lord most perfectly. And he began to preach the gospel extremely powerfully. But then we're told that the church sent him and recommended him by way of a letter where he went to Greece because he wanted to go to Greece to preach the word of God and he received that letter. Now, Paul had no such letter. He leaves Damascus in a hurry. He leaves for fear of his life. He's got no documentation on him to say that he is accepted by the church in Damascus and that his preaching there has been blessed. There's nothing like that. So that's one reason, a formal reason, one that's unspoken or unmentioned here. The other two reasons are spiritual, and we need to look at them a bit more deeply. The first reason, or the second reason they don't receive him in Damascus is because they're afraid of him. They're afraid of him. That's what we're told in the Acts of the Apostles. Now, they had every reason to be afraid of Saul. 
You'll remember, as I just quoted a wee while ago, that um, Saul, we're told, made havoc of the church. We read earlier that he tried to waste it. Make no mistake, he wanted to kill off the church to finish it. He made havoc of the church, entering every house. Now think about this, he's going house to house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Shortly afterwards, we're told that Saul was breathing threatenings and murder against the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest, asked for letters that he could take to the Damascus synagogues so that if he could find any Christians, he could bring them chained back to Jerusalem. Every reason to be afraid of Saul. And as well as being afraid of him, they didn't believe that he was a Christian at all. Now, certainly they would have heard three years before that this man who went on a mission uh, to capture Christians and bring them back bound had actually amazingly been converted. They would have heard that. Everybody would have heard that. But they had never met him. And what's more, immediately afterwards, Saul had disappeared. Wasn't seen in Damascus, wasn't seen anywhere. So again, he was out of sight and he was out of mind, out of their minds. And neither had they had time in Jerusalem to hear the news that he had suddenly come back out of nowhere after three years and that he was powerfully preaching the gospel in Damascus. They hadn't heard any of that. So they are extremely wary. Now, Let me say two things about that. First, they were wise to be wary. But second, they were wrong to reject him. First, they were wise to be wary. Now, some people think it isn't wise to be wary. They think it's unkind or unchristian to be wary. But that's a bit foolish, really. The Lord reminds us that as Christians, we're not just to be harmless as doves, but we're to be wise as serpents. It was the Lord himself who said to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. So just because it looks like a sheep doesn't mean it's a sheep. The wolf will come in sheep's clothing. You'll all have heard stories. Uh, These stories come from uh, countries where the state is persecuting the church. Uh, These stories are legion in Eastern Europe, in Russia, and even today in China, and certainly North Korea, and plenty other places too, where state officials will masquerade as converts. You find the same thing in Iran. They'll masquerade as converts, trying to get in amongst the Lord's people, just simply to get names and addresses. And once they've gathered the information, they give the information to the state. So the church needs to be alive to that. It's right to be wary. People say, oh, you should expect a, accept a profession just like that. Well, that would be foolish. Extremely foolish to do such a thing when there are wolves in sheep's clothing. 
the alternative to that is to bring any person who claims to be a Christian, to bring them prayerfully before the Lord and to test the spirits, as John tells us to do in 1 John 4, test the spirits to see whether they are of God. And of course the church in Jerusalem failed to do that. Obviously they did, because they rejected him without even meeting him. Now, I think it's easy to overlook how difficult that was for Saul himself. Again, it's something that you just pass over without thinking about, but it's the second serious rejection that he's had in just a very brief time after beginning the work that the Lord had given him to do. He had been rejected in Damascus. It seemed like a failure. And here he's rejected in Jerusalem. And I want you to understand that this rejection is far harder than the one in Damascus because it's a rejection by the church. You sometimes find yourself, or you may find yourself, in a situation where you're rejected by the church and by the world as a Christian, as a believer. I mean, Saul was dependent on the fellowship of these people because he was ostracized by everybody he knew before. You can see that. His old life is finished, gone. Nobody wants to know him in his old life. He now needs the fellowship of these people in his new life, and they don't want to know him either. And it can be a sore thing when providence so works that you find yourself in a situation that for whatever reason the Lord's people don't seem to want to know you, Whatever their reason doesn't really matter to you right now because they just don't want to know you, don't want to meet you, and they don't want to accept you. Now, that is a lonely time. It's a very trying time. It's a very difficult time. And I've no doubt, I think, in our experience as Christians, it's at times like that that, uh, this is putting us down a, a different avenue really, but it's at times like that that the Lord, I think, is calling you into a wilderness of some kind. And it is a wilderness. You're in a no-man's land, not welcome in the church or not welcome in the world, even though you're a Christian. But it's a kind of wilderness in which the Lord takes you aside to, to speak to your soul, to have some kind of close dealing with your soul. And don't be too disillusioned when that happens. God has his purpose in that, and he will bring the matter round. But he will use that time to teach you certain things that can only be taught in the wilderness. So just keep that in your head, perhaps even for future use. But it's interesting that that's where Barnabas comes in. Now the Lord has his people and he uses them in different ways all the time. Barnabas was a, a Levite, but he was from Cyprus. He was a Jew and he was a cousin of a young man called John Mark, whom we know as Mark the author of the second gospel. So Barnabas is a cousin of Mark. Mark is very close to the apostle Peter. So much so that Peter calls Mark his son in the gospel. Now that is an expression that Paul uses later of Timothy. Um, Timothy had become so close to the apostle and the apostle was so close to him uh, that he referred to him as my son uh, in the faith. And 
That's how Peter was with John Mark, who was a cousin of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas arranged a meeting between himself, Barnabas, Paul, and Peter, and James, the Lord's brother. Um, That's the James who wrote the letter at the end of the New Testament. He was actually a half-brother of the Lord. He was a a son of Mary, um, but of course a son of Joseph too, which our Lord Jesus was not. He was an unconverted man until the resurrection. And he, he became a believer after the resurrection, and he was already rising in providence, uh, rising in prominence in the church in Jerusalem. So James, Peter, met with Paul and with Barnabas. And Barnabas there takes the opportunity to tell Peter and James about how Paul was converted, how Saul was converted. I keep calling him Paul at this point, Saul. But how he was converted and how he was powerfully called to preach the gospel and how he was preaching the gospel to great effect in Damascus. The result was that Peter and James uh, gladly welcomed him, gave him their fellowship and their friendship. And the result, as we're told in this passage here, is that he stayed with Peter for 15 days. Uh, what a meeting that was. What a fortnight. You know, there are many fellowships that are, uh, are, are, so, are so good that you don't want to say anything at them yourself. Sometimes they're so lively and what people have to say is so good that you're just nourished by being there. You don't need to contribute much. Well, this is one of those. You would have gladly sat in that room and said nothing for 14 days while these two spoke of all that they had to speak about. Now, it may well be true that the Lord had given the gospel message directly to Paul But there were so many things that Peter could personally tell him about how the Lord dealt with themselves. That's what fellowship really is at the end of the day. Fellowship is not discussing theology. It's discussing theology theology personally and experientially. That's what fellowship is. Fellowship is about what the Lord has done for yourself. And if I have fellowship with you, The Greek word kononia means that I give of myself to you, you give of yourself to me. That is fellowship. What a fellowship there was there. Uh, Paul is the one who tells us, for example, that the Lord Jesus met Peter on the day of his resurrection. You can't help but wonder if that was a detail that Peter told himself. How the Lord personally met him that day and doubtless pronounced forgiveness to Peter for his sin. After all, his soul was grievously distressed because he had denied the Lord, but the Lord gave him forgiveness. Peter had so much to say after a three-year walk with the Lord, and Paul had so much to say about how he was stopped on the Damascus Road, how his life was turned upside down, how, how he was blind, how the scales fell from his eyes, how he went to Arabia, what he was taught, Fifteen days fellowship in the Lord. And the result is that Paul begins to preach in Jerusalem. Not for long, 
but he preaches to the Hellenists. Now that is an interesting thing. The Hellenists had their own synagogues. They were Greek-speaking Jews. And Jews, but more of a Greek culture and background, speaking the Greek language. Now that's the way Paul was himself. You remember he was from Turkey, really. Although he was a Jew, he was from Tarsus, which is now in Turkey. It's the fourth largest city in Turkey. That's where he was from. So he went to them. He went to these local synagogues of Greek-speaking Jews and he began to preach to them. Um, these are the very synagogues where Stephen had been preaching. He, he chose to, and we believe God led him to preach to these Hellenists, and he disputed with the Hellenists. Now, I'm quite sure that Saul was present on these occasions. Just as he was present at Stephen's trial and his execution, he was present on those occasions. We don't know if Saul actually disputed with Stephen personally, but he certainly would have been in the hearing, and he certainly would have been angry about it. And as he tells us, when the Sanhedrin voted to put Stephen to death and when they stoned him, he gave us assent to that. Saul was saying, yes, by all means, put this man to death. And in the providence of God, the people who were stoning him lay their clothes at the feet of this young man called Saul. Three years later, he's in the same synagogues, preaching the same message as Stephen was preaching. They were hearing him preach the faith that just three years ago he was trying to destroy. Now, if Paul thought they were all going to be converted, he was far wrong. Very often we think when we preach or when we witness that people are going to be converted. It doesn't always work like that. In fact, there was a second plot on his life. The Jews in Jerusalem began to plot for his life. Second time. In just the matter, really, of weeks. Now, again, I'm quite sure his instinct was to stay and fight it out. After all, he loved his countrymen. And wherever he went, he went to the synagogue first, to the Jew first, to preach the gospel to them first. His heart ached for them. He had grief and continual sorrow in his heart for his fellow Jewish people. But again, two things changed his mind. And the first was the brethren. We're told in the Acts that they took him to Caesarea and they set him on a boat there to go to Tarsus, back to his homeland. And again, on that occasion, the Greek language carries the idea of persuasion. They took him. It's as though he didn't want to go but they were persuaded that he should go they were similar to the Christians in Damascus we don't want to imperil this man's life that the Lord has a, a work and a calling before him so we'll take him out of the heat and we'll put him away but what helped Paul was that the Lord spoke to him directly he tells us that he was in the temple praying. Now the disciples, at this point you see the temple is kind of redundant really. You can understand that the sacrifices are redundant. Uh, the one great sacrifice has been offered and accepted. The veil of the temple had been torn in two. Everything that's going on there is, is redundant. But the outer courts are still courts of prayer and the disciples use them. 
Peter and John went up there at the hour of prayer to pray. Here we find Saul praying in the temple. He still feels free enough to to appear in their praying. And in all probability, one of the things that's exercising his soul is whether he should stay or leave. Doubtless his own dangerous situation may be bringing other people into danger. These are the kind of factors that you have to weigh in these situations. And even if your brethren are telling you something, you want a voice from the Lord. Sometimes maybe it's not enough to hear what people are saying. You want a voice from the Lord. But Saul tells us that he fell into a trance when he was praying. The Greek word is ecstasy, which means that you're literally in the Greek that you're standing outside of yourself. you're just you're somehow displaced and he's conscious of seeing the one that he saw on the Damascus road and the Lord Jesus tells him to get out of here quickly because he says they're not going to accept your testimony and the interesting thing is that Paul with reverence and I'm sure he said it with reverence too and I do it with reverence He argued back and he said, they see me as a traitor. They know that I was opposed to this people. They know that um, I was against Stephen and they laid their clothes at my feet as he was being stoned. But they must be impressed, Paul was saying, and I mean that in the best sense of the term, impressed with the fact that something must have happened in my life. That when I claim to have seen the Lord, that I must have seen the Lord. There's nothing else to account for a change like this. Surely, if you, if you just leave me, as it were, to preach the gospel to them, they will come to recognize that it is only by your power and by your grace that my opposition to these people has totally turned around. The power of Christ will be seen If I keep preaching to these Hellenists, God came back and said, go, he says, go, I am sending you to the Gentiles. Now, there's a lot of sense in what Paul said. There's a lot of common sense in what Paul said. There's a lot of rationality in it. He says, these people are understandably angry. And there is great value in what's sometimes called a trophy convert. There's sometimes nothing quite as powerful as somebody coming right from the other side onto your side. It's a powerful thing and a powerful testimony back. And if you were going to organize events or if I was going to organize events, we would say to Paul, oh, you stay there. You stay there amongst the Hellenists. That's the very people who will most listen and best listen to the message that you have to give. These are, these are the ones who understand your background. They understand your experience. You keep preaching there to these people. And God says, no. I'm sending you away, he says, to people who have never heard the gospel at all. Now, our judgment, wise as it is, doesn't override the express will of God. And Paul was basically trying to argue back and saying this makes sense and God saying what makes sense is what I'm telling you to do and that's the end of the matter. 
I'm sending you what I said, first of all, I was going to send you. That reminds us to beware of being too rationalistic in judging the will of God, as we sometimes are. That tendency is amongst us. See, we say, for example, when ministers are called to places, oh, he should stay because of this, or oh, he should go because of that, or, uh, well, definitely this is the right thing to do, and definitely that's the right thing to do, and there's, and there's a list of reasons. But they may have nothing to do with what the Lord wants done. Nothing at all. The Lord was the one who sovereignly intervened and said, go and get out of here because they are seeking your life. And of course, had he remained, well, things would have been different. And the disciples took him down to Caesarea and he crossed to Tarsus, to Turkey, his homeland, in the province of Cilicia and Syria where he works planting and building churches on his own for several years and nobody knows he's there, really. It's a dead, sorry, it's a silent period in the, in, the, in the biblical narrative. So much of his life is silent there, you see. Like, he's in his 30s, he goes for three years to Arabia, makes a, a fleeting visit to Jerusalem, a fortnight with Peter, a few weeks preaching, and he's off for seven or eight years to Tarsus. And to various places in the province of Syria and Cilicia, where he's busy on his own planting and building churches, until Barnabas one day decides that he is needed in Antioch. He, re- he remembers this man. And he goes away uh, to Tarsus and sends a message saying, you come back to us, to Antioch. And that is the start of Paul's great missionary journeys. But there was all that build-up where the Lord is preparing his own man for it. And he didn't see Peter and the apostles for the next 10 or 11 years. And he says too, he says, I wasn't even known in the churches of Judea. They didn't know me by faith, he says. They only knew me by reputation, that he who preached the faith now preaches the faith that he once tried to destroy. This is the church giving thanks to God that that was so, because he immediately follows, at the end, the last verse here in Galatians 1, that they glorified God in me. That's a wonderful expression. They didn't glorify Paul. So I have to say that's how many people in the church would be today. They would glorify Paul. They would make a lot of Paul. They didn't even glorify God's work by the hand of Paul. That's not what they were doing either, although they could do that. Paul uses an unusual expression that they glorified God in me. In other words, they glorify God for what God accomplished in me. Not by me or through me, but actually in me. They rejoiced that God had powerfully turned a persecutor into a preacher of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's well worth giving God thanks for. I spoke today about the great power of God in creating the universe and in everything that he has ever done, but what is that? What is that comparable to taking a wicked heart and turning it around to know and to love himself? There is nothing comparable with that. That is the great power of God exercised in the spiritual realm, doing what is impossible justifying a sinner and converting a sinner into a holy person. That 
that would be the thing that would give ourselves the greatest uh, spiritual thrill tonight. It wouldn't be to see even a sign in the heavens. That would be nothing compared to one of yourselves turning from darkness to light. I mean, if you ask me the question, which would I rather see, a spectacular sign in the heavens or one of you converted every day? It's one of you converted. There can be signs in the heavens forever. It doesn't change anything. That's what Paul discovered with the Hellenists. If he thought that his mere presence would change these people, no, God says, they will not receive your witness. But when he is present to bless the gospel in power, a life is changed. And that's what these Christians rejoiced in. All through Judea, we've never seen this man, but wonder of wonders, he is preaching the gospel that he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me, God at work in me, as the regenerating, uh, creating God. Let's leave that there, and we'll return to it another time. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, as we contemplate these things, we cannot but pray that in your uh, great grace and power uh, you would send preachers of the word and that they would be attentive to your voice and to your direction, that they would be responsive to your call, that they would labour where you place them and grant us a church as a church, an appreciation of these things and to value the word of God, knowing that what we don't value, we lose. Oh, we ask that you would work in your great mercy and power. There are people, perhaps amongst us, but many around us tonight, even in this town, who are as opposed to your gospel as Saul of Tarsus was. Will you not come into their lives as powerfully as you came into his Will you not turn them from mockers and maybe persecutors into those who are witness bearers and preachers on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ? You are able so to do, and we plead with you to do so. In the precious name of Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. We'll uh, close our service uh, singing in Psalm 56. At verse 3, Psalm 56 at verse 3. When I'm afraid, I'll trust in thee, in God. I'll praise his word. I will not fear what flesh can do. My trust is in the Lord. Each day they rest my words. Their thoughts against me are all for ill or evil. They meet, they lurk. They mark my steps, waiting my soul to kill. But shall they by iniquity escape thy judgment so? O God, with indignation down do thou the people throw. My wanderings all, what they have been, thou knowest. Their number took, into thy bottle put my tears. Are they not in thy book?
3 to 8, we stand to sing. <clears throat>